Well, good morning, everyone, again. I want to talk to you today about the table. I told my mother I would be sitting at a table in front of you, and she said, are you getting too old to stand? <laughs> this past week, I've spent many hours at my mom's bedside at Torrance Memorial Hospital, and I've reflected quite a bit about my life with my mother. For my family, I think that our language of love was gathering around the dining room table. If there was a crisis, if someone got sick, if someone was hurt, if someone was happy, if someone had a birthday or an anniversary, if someone got married, if someone was born, if someone got a good report card, if somebody won a game, everybody would just sit around our dining room table. And I was thinking about all the huge moments of my life that I have had sitting around our table at 231 Riverside Drive, Princeton, New Jersey. And I think everybody in this room has that table or those tables for themselves. There's more memories than I can count. My mother used to have these dinner parties and, and my dad was the Dean of Students at Princeton Seminary. And so uh, when I was a student there, when my sisters were students, they would invite friends to come home for dinner. Well, my mom's dinner parties got around and people would beg us to be invited to one of my mom's Friday night dinner parties. Thanksgiving, my dad would invite foreign students from the seminary to come and, and who wouldn't have a place to go for Thanksgiving. And he made the mistake of asking each of them if they would pray in their native tongue before we had our Thanksgiving dinner. Well, you can imagine the gratitude of these foreign students made their prayers go on and on and on. And so finally, my brother came up with a great idea. Dad, next year, why don't you just ask them to say the Lord's Prayer in their own native tongue? <laughs> And so that shortened the prayer time and we were able to eat turkey sooner. <laughs> Breakfast on Christmas morning always, always was a special kind of sausage with eggs. I was a campus life director in northern New Jersey and my mother called me up and said, Bill, I'm having a faculty dinner on Friday night and we have a guest professor from Edinburgh, Scotland and I'd like you to come and be a part of the dinner. And she seated me next to Dr. McIntyre, who was the chaplain to the Queen whenever she was in Scotland. He's a professor of dogmatic theology, and so I was a little intimidated sitting next to him. I mean, this guy was so smart, he could probably prove that I didn't exist. <laughs> so I said, Dr. McIntyre, I would imagine that the American students are not as bright as the British students. And he said, oh no, quite the contrary. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, why is that? He said, well, in America, you have a four-year liberal arts education before you come to seminary. And in Great Britain, once you finish high school, you go to the School of Theology. And so I find the American students to be far more well-rounded and well-read than the British students. And I said to him, you mean to tell me that I could cut it in the British system uh, intellectually and, and academically? And he said, oh yes. He said, in fact, I'd encourage you to apply, which I did and got accepted and had a chance to study in Edinburgh. You know, they say theology is conceived in Germany, corrected in Scotland, and corrupted in America. <laughs> in fact, it's interesting that I had a, a roommate in college who knew Nate and Joanne. And on my behalf, he contacted Nate, and Nate picked me up at the airport when I arrived in Scotland. He was doing his doctoral studies there. And Nate and Joanne let me stay in their apartment for a couple days till I was able to get into my dorm room. And many times, 
I shouldn't say many, but several times I would go and babysit for Nate and Joanne so they could have their date night. One time Youth for Christ flew me back to speak at a youth conference and, and I was able to grab a, a watch from Disney World and I remember bringing it back for one of their daughters. And, and now to think that, that Nate and I participated in Lindsay's wedding just a few weeks ago and I used to change her diapers when I was babysitting. So uh, what a memory. So that table brings me back to a lot of things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together and he has a chapter about table. And in my journal, I had written a quote of his uh, from that chapter. And here's what he says, people should not eat the bread of sorrows, rather eat thy bread with joy. Which, by the way, is a quote from Ecclesiastes 9-7. Bonhoeffer goes on, God cannot endure that unfestive mirthless attitude of ours in which we eat our bread in sorrow with pretentious busy haste. I like that phrase. Or even shame. Through our daily meals, he is calling us to rejoice together, to keep holiday in the midst of our working day. The table keeps holiday in the midst of our working day. I don't know if you've ever noticed that different tables have different table talk. Families have a different way of communicating around the table. Whenever my brothers and sisters and I would get into a fight at dinner, my dad would say, not at table, not at table. I can remember going over to Tony Trani's house. I, Tony was one of my good friends. His mother was Italian, and she fixed the most amazing meals. But the first time I went over there for dinner, they started what I thought was fighting at the table. You did what? You shouldn't have done that. No, I would never do No, don't go there. And after dinner, I said, Tony, what was all that fighting about? He says, we weren't fighting. We were helping each other. When my wife and I got married, we had a family table that looked a little different. With two adults, the table was quite manageable. But when we had kids, the table became a mess. And we had to decide, would we rather have a neat table or have a new life at our table? I can still remember after all three of our kids were born, what a triumph it was when we had a meal with no one spilled, no one cried, and no one spit up. And we'd made it through a meal in one sitting. Allie and Betsy were 15, but it was still a great moment. And uh, It's a funny thing about the table. We always sat at the same place. Dad sat here. My brother Dave sat here. My sister Carolyn sat here. My mother sat here. My sister Marilyn sat here. And I sat here. We never voted on this. In fact, there was no assigned seating list. We just all had a place, and we knew exactly where it was. Not to have a place at the table is a terrible thing. Now, I've just got a few pictures here. Let's see if we can see them of my table. By the way, if you've seen my mom here, this is my mom right here. That's my sister Carolyn right over there, and right here is Janet, who is my dad's administrative assistant, and her daughter. She'd been in an abusive relationship, and she often sat at our table as we protected her from her husband. 
This is one of the seminary students here. First time he came to my house, he was dating my sister Marilyn, and my wife, my mother said, you can put your sweater anywhere, and he took it off and put it in the freezer. <laughs> so now you know why my sister didn't marry him. Okay, let's, uh, let's go on. Here we are, just at the last Thanksgiving service. My daughter Betsy on the end, my mother, my other daughter, well, that's Allie on the end. Here's Betsy here and my brother-in-law Steve and my sister Carolyn getting ready to sit around the Thanksgiving table. Go to the next one. Oh, there's my daughters, my mother. Boy, she looks so different now. Okay, let's go to the next one. Ah, here's Eli. <laughs> See, some people, they make their table anywhere. So there she's eating right there on the floor. So, <laughs> Bree, I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> All right, I think that's enough. So, I was thinking, as I was sitting in my mom's hospital room for the past couple days, how fast life goes. So I want to ask you, are you getting enough time around the table with the people that you love? As a pastor, I've sat with many people at the end of their lives, and, and I've shared with them, and they've shared with me about those silly, wasted, unhurried, wonderful, precious moments that they now treasure and remember sitting around the table. I wonder how it's going around the table for you. You know, when you think about it, the Bible has quite a lot to say about tables. Way back in Israel's history, they had a little tent to show that God wanted to be with his people. It was called the tabernacle. Some, sometimes it was called the tent of meeting. Dallas Willard writes that the unifying principle of the Bible is the, author of, is the offer of life with God as a reality for ordinary people here on earth focused around the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the whole Bible is about life with God. And so they had this tent, and it was to demonstrate that somehow uh, God was with them. And this tent didn't have very much furniture, but it did have a table. And in the book of Exodus, there were some very precise instructions about how to build this table. It was to be made with gold, and I think that was because God wanted people to prize this table. It was to be made with, uh, uh, in such a way that it struck people with awe. It was to have a pitcher of wine, and it was to have a special kind of bread. Did you notice that every one of your tablecloths is in gold today? It was supposed to have a gold plate on every table, and a gold chalice for wine. In Exodus 25, God says, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before you at all times. I don't know how many of you like the smell of fresh bread. My wife, when we were dating, she's a fabulous cook, and she would make me two loaves of banana bread every week. And I would cut my banana bread into little tiny squares and so that it would last throughout the week. And that's how I would eat it even to this day. That's how I still cut my banana bread. She never put walnuts into banana bread. Walnuts are evil. They are never mentioned once in the Bible, and I think <laughs> Kathy knew that. But to this day, whenever I smell banana bread, I think about Kathy in our dating days. I can visualize the transfer of that bread to me and the smell of it. Now here's an incredible phrase. 
put on the table the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. So that when you would smell that aroma, it would remind you that God is always there. Our God is always here. God is always giving us this day our daily bread. Every time you eat your bread, you think, God is here. And this is loaded language. In Leviticus, we're told that there would always be 12 loaves of bread. Every Israelite would understand immediately what that meant. One for every tribe of Israel. And that means God always has enough for everybody. That means God's table always has a chair for everybody. They say that the sense of smell is one of the, 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 the senses that brings the most memories to us. And God is saying, I want that aroma going on all the time. When you come into my house, I want you to smell that smell. And I want you to remember, I am with you always. You're never alone. There's always a place for you at the table. There's a real interesting story about David and the table. When David was a young and successful and very popular warrior, King Saul envied him, and he got very jealous of him. Remember, they said Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. And so Saul invited David to eat at his table one time, but it was actually a ploy to kill him. Saul was very deceitful. Now, there's a very interesting detail to this story because it says that Saul ate with his back to the wall. And that was so that nobody would sneak up behind him and kill him because he was a devious guy. And that way he'd be safe from attack at his table. But David gets tipped off and so he stays away from the dinner. His best friend Jonathan is Saul's son. But when Jonathan found out that his dad was trying to kill David, the Bible says he left his father's table. And I think we all understand that that's more than where he was going to eat his next meal. That was an expression of saying, I'm distancing myself from my father. It's an expression of my costly loyalty to David. It's a sacrificial alliance of my heart with David's. He left his father's table for his friend. Many years later, after Saul was dead and Jonathan was dead, David asked if there were any descendants of theirs that were still alive. And there was only one. It was a young crippled boy by the name of Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth would have been in a real dangerous situation being the only remaining descendant of the former king. But with David on the throne, it could have been a threat to David. But David tracked him down and David said to this boy, I will restore to you the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table. Now, to eat at the king's table meant that you were under the king's protection. It meant that you were granted royal status. It meant that you would have an identity that you were really somebody. To be treated as a member of the king's family. But Mephibosheth, he couldn't believe it. He, he might have been terrified and thought, maybe the same kind of trick that my grandfather tried to pull on David, David's going to try to pull on me. And so Mephibosheth says in 2 Samuel 9, 8, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? In other words, I don't belong at your table. David's heart is so moved by this terrified and troubled young boy that he basically says, No, 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 you're not a dog. 
As long as I have a table, you have a table. As long as I have a chair, you have a chair. In fact, several times in this passage, I think it was four times, we're told that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You know, you can tell a lot about a person's heart by who they make a place for at their table. For reasons that I'll never know, God has given me parents who always made room for others at their table. And for reasons that I don't think I'll ever know either, God has allowed me to be the pastor of this church. A group of people who said right out of the gate, we will not forget those who are not at the table. We will do anything. We will pay any price. We will get creative. We'll be courageous. We'll be bold. We will face any criticism. We will, pay, we will pray. We'll do whatever we can to help everybody that we know to find that there's a place for them around God's table. You know, churches don't always do that. And I think this is a real precious legacy of Water's Edge now, the funny thing about tables is you can tell if you're welcome or not. And if you remember high school lunchroom, <clears throat> you just didn't sit down at any table in the cafeteria. Everybody knew that all the tables are ranked according to the cool factor of the kids who were sitting at that table. It was all about status. Again, nobody voted on this, but everybody knew it was clear and they never violated it. You'd never go to a table that exceeded your coolness factor. Because you'd be, you wouldn't be welcome there and you knew it. You can always tell if someone wants you at their table. Water's Edge Church decided that we're going to be the church of the open table. We're going to invite our friends. We're going to pray for our neighbors. We're going to get to know our coworkers. We're going to open our hearts up to people who don't have what we have. We're actually going to cultivate relationships with people at the gas station and at restaurants and in our hair salons and in our health clubs. And while we're volunteering with our kids at school or we're joining a league because we want everyone to find a place at this table. And by the way, how's it going? Are we still doing that? Is your heart wide open towards God for that kind of thing? You know, you can tell a lot about a person's heart by who sits at their table. Jesus was always getting into trouble for this, always. In his culture, even way more than ours, to sit at a table was somewhat of a pretty big deal. It was a defining moment. It was kind of an identity stamp. When you sat at a table with somebody, you were kind of identifying with them and allowing yourself to be identified with them. In that culture, to sit at someone's table was to extend to them, in a rather public way, acceptance and friendship and protection and love. The shared table, says Dallas Willard, is the shared life. And so religious leaders were quite careful about who was at their table because they had a reputation that they had to uphold. Jesus was not careful about this at all. In fact, he shared a place at the table with the most unlikely, unrespectable, unholy candidates. And he did this all the time. If you go through the Gospels, and I, I, I encourage you to do it sometime, just look at all the times Jesus is at the table or talking about the table. 
Luke 14 is a whole chapter about table etiquette. Jesus was sitting with some Pharisees having dinner and a diseased man came up and, and, and Jesus breaks all kinds of table rules. Nobody acknowledges the guy, but Jesus heals him. And Jesus gets mad when everyone else ignores him. Notice everybody is going for the high status seats and Jesus says, not at God's table. At God's table, you humble yourself. And he turns to the guy who was hosting the feast and he gives him some very edgy and provocative and in some respects offensive advice. He says in Luke 14, verse 12, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your neighbors. If you do, they may, not, may, may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thus, Jesus is clearly teaching that you should never have your relatives over for dinner. <laughs> and some of you have been looking for that verse your whole married life. <laughs> Weren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> Obviously, I hope you understand that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying in quite a deliberate, provocative way, do not be exclusive when it comes to the table. Now that the kingdom of God is present, and it's present in Jesus, there are some serious, radical implications to the table. You see, the, the Pharisees loved the temple. And the temple was all about being holy. So that at the temple, there was nothing that was malformed or deformed. Remember about the animal sacrifice? An unblemished lamb, something without any imperfections. And so the Pharisees wanted to turn their homes into little temples. And therefore, nothing malformed could be allowed into their homes because they thought it wouldn't be holy enough. It wouldn't make them holy. So when Jesus says, inviting to your home the poor, I think they kind of thought that would be okay. But when he says, invite the crippled and the lame or the blind, he's deliberately attacking their idea of what it means to be holy. To them, to be holy is determined by who you exclude at the table. And to Jesus, to be holy is demonstrated by who you include at the table. And I love this church because you want to be a church that is not an us versus them and excludes anyone. You just say, everyone, come on in. Water's Edge is a table for everybody. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because this was Jesus' reputation. He welcomed sinners and he ate with them. And he never apologized for this. In fact, he told stories that just got really edgy. And just to pull this together, remember the prodigal son? He didn't want to sit at his dad's table anymore, so he leaves. And every day the father sits at that table, and every day he sees that empty chair, and it kills him. And some of you know the pain of an empty chair at the table. There is no pain in the world like that pain. And the father knows that pain. And then one day that boy comes home, and the father's so excited he can hardly stand it. And he throws a feast and he puts the best food on the table and he puts the best robe on his son. But now the older boy won't come to the table. He's all judgmental and bitter and self-righteous. 
because he's convinced that he knows who deserves to be at the table and who doesn't deserve to be at the table. And when the story ends, the father's out there talking to the older brother. Would you just soften your heart? Would you please come back into the table? Because the father suffers with every empty chair. Because it's not about being deserving. It's about love. And I think there's a desire in every human heart to be loved and to have a place at the table. And it gets deeper than any other kind of hunger And so I hope you get the table right. I hope you're lingering around the table with some people that you love. I hope you do that today. And I hope you'll enter into deep community even around this church so that when a crisis hits that you'll have brothers and sisters around the table with you. And I hope that you are meeting and caring for and listening to and loving people who are real far from God and making a place for them at your table. Because the one that we follow is a table guy. In fact, eventually it was because he sat with too many, at too many tables with too many wrong people that got him killed. And so on his last night, he sat down one last time around a table. It was a foreshadow of something a long, long time ago in the Bible because it too had bread enough for 12 and it too had wine but it wasn't made of gold this table it was a table to remember him for what he accomplished in his sacrificial death for our sins into the resurrected life that we might have life and so this table the Lord's table is the most wonderful prized and sacred table in the world And now here we are. And when we come to the table, Jesus is still there. The bread of his presence is on your table. And he's inviting you to this table. And I think you should have two thoughts right now. First, you should be thinking, I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be at this table. I've messed up. I've deceived, I've hurt, I've wounded, I'm so full of sin, I don't belong here. And that's one thought. And the other thought is, Jesus wants me here. Jesus wants me at his table. He wants you at his table. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we have so much to be grateful for. Thank you for tables. Thank you for the tables all of us think about right now where we used to sit when we were children and new tables as we grew older. Would you heal our hearts where there is pain from experiences being around tables? Receive our gratitude for all the tables where we were welcomed in and loved and cared for. But above everything else, we thank you for this table, for Jesus' table. We thank you that you wanted us at his table. And even though we've sinned and fallen so far short, you were determined that, that somehow you would go to great lengths to seek us out even when we were so far away. 
Some of us were runaways and some of us were driftaways. But you would not give up on us. And so we thank you for your son who was crucified for our sins and resurrected from the dead and has given us a living hope and who intercedes for us every day and is one day coming back to set this sorry world right so that we might have a seat at your table. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.